Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts, and I am here with my good friends, Josh Benson. Josh Benson, rocking it from Marion, Illinois. And Danielle. Hi, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. Hey there, Brian. Brian Zelmer from KE Presents in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. And last but not least, Kevin. Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts in Rock Island, Illinois. So my question for you today is a little on the sweeter side. Sometimes we get pretty silly here on the pod, but today I want to know, what is the kindest thing a colleague has done to support you or others in the workplace? Told me that my hair looked good. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, uh, whenever my daughter was born. Um, one of my colleagues actually came and mowed the property, which mowing my grass isn't like a small thing. It's like a three, three and a half, four hour endeavor because it's acres of property. And so they came and mowed my lawn, which, you know, doesn't sound like a huge deal until you really think about 10 acres of grass. That's pretty awesome, Josh. That's a really nice coworker. And my hair looked great. (laughs) (laughs) From all those sleepless nights, I'm sure. I don't know that I have a specific example like Josh's, but I know that there have been moments in my career where, honestly, colleagues have just made space for me. Um, It may come to a surprise for a lot of people, but I am incredibly shy. um, And sometimes it's really hard for me to speak up in a room or, you know, uh, in certain environments. And when colleagues encourage me to or sort of um, say like, oh, Kevin's got something to say here or Kevin has a great story about this. I've, I've always been very appreciative of that. I have a colleague right now that has a tendency to leave really nice notes on people's desks. And you know that they were written to you by this person because it's very distinctive handwriting. Um, But they're always just thoughtful, encouraging notes. Sometimes they're personal, sometimes they're work related. But I really do think that his thoughtfulness um, in that vein really lifts people's spirits. And and it's not just his team. It's not just the people that are in the office. He does it for everybody in the building. I really appreciate whenever I get one of those notes. It really makes my day. And I know other people do too. It's really sweet. It is. Um, about a year ago, I was going through a really tough time and coming into work and just like trying to do the thing where you leave everything at the door and get everything done. Um, but I was, you know, I was dropping stuff and um, just, I wasn't, I maybe wasn't quite as sharp and um, our supervisor at the time definitely realized that like something was going on and like was just really amazing about finding ways to like kind of take me aside at different points and just be like, so tell me what's going on and kind of connect me with some resources that I didn't know about um, that were really helpful. Uh, that colleague kind of transferred over to a different part of our our system. And I think two or three times after they left, they would just call me um, on Teams uh, randomly when I didn't, you know, without kind of notice um, and just to check in and just to see like how things were going and to like make sure that I was doing the things that like I said I was going to do that like, would help me and not just sort of like live in the frustration and sadness to like actually take action on these things. And it just, I mean, I'll never forget the two or three months afterwards, like whenever everything's quiet, you kind of tend to kind of sink back into it a little bit. And um, yeah, it was just, it was really kind and really not something that I felt like was necessary in the workplace. Uh, But it it really did kind of help me organize my thoughts at work. I love that. In the work that we do, we tend to get really busy and and just going on all cylinders and going all the hours of the day and weekends and everything else. And we get kind of buried in things. And then all of a sudden when an emergency pops up or something pops up, 
it, there's been times where just the people around me, my coworkers, um, just step in and are like, we got it. We're good. And, and those times have happened. And that's always great to know that, that, you know, my team has my back as much as I have theirs, but I'm going to go to a recent conference that I was allowed to go to by my work, but my job didn't have anything in the budget to, um, cover that. And so one of my colleagues stepped in and offered to cover the cost of the accommodations. And, and I got to sleep on the couch in this really cool loft. Uh, he was really kind in that. I've also had, um, uh, just like Katie, I had a colleague send me a really sweet note out of nowhere, out of the blue, to, and it just lifted my day because it just, you know, told me how much I'm appreciated. That was really special. And then I've also gotten an ornament, uh, the first one that of my state that a colleague uh, sent me one time. It was really sweet. And so just, you know, there's these special times that do happen and they definitely stand out um, because we're just so busy and grinding so much of the time. Well, Brian, it sounds like you have some wonderful friends and I really appreciate everybody sharing um, the ways that other people have shown up for them and the ways that they've been kind to colleagues in the workplace. This conversation relates directly to the conversation we're going to hear today that I had with my dear friend, Caroline Nyman from the Green Music Center. Uh, we have a really wide ranging conversation. Um, I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Caroline Nyman. I am the Senior Director of Operations at Sonoma State University's Green Music Center. And I'm also a very proud mom and a working mom, which is awesome to stay in this industry. Caroline, welcome to There's No Business Like. We are so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, so everyone knows we have been friends for about five years, a little over five yeah. years. And yeah. so we met as part of the Emerging Leaders Institute program at APAP in 2018. Yes, we did. That was honestly one of my favorite experiences that I've had in my career. I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I would say too, it was like a transformational experience. And I had the opportunity to meet amazing people kind of like in the same stage of career and stage of life as me. Yeah. And we've been able to like stay in touch and watch each other grow and change in our careers over the course of the last like five and a half years. So I'm so excited to have this chat today. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's just start with learning a little bit more about you. So how Hi. did you get into the arts? What propelled you into this field? And how did you end up at the Green Music Center? This is a fun story, I guess. It also is, I always laugh because I think it's kind of a boring story too. Here we go. I graduated from Sonoma State in 2010. The Green Music Center is part of Sonoma State University. It was being built while I was here in college. The building stopped being built at a certain point. Like the shell was done. The inside still needed some work. The landscaping still needed work, but the recession hit in 08 or whatever that time frame was. And so they kind of stopped any construction really on it. So I graduated in 2010. The funding had also stopped for the project, right? Like, you know, during that time, people weren't giving a ton of money. So I graduated and got a job right out of college working in a department on campus as an admin assistant. That was in May of 2010. In November of 2010, or right around there, Joan and Sandy Weil, who came in, saw the venue, and um, gave a huge gift to help finish the project. You know, attached to that was a timeline to finish the project. We started developing a staff team. And so I got hired on as the admin assistant here at Green. So I moved across campus to the Green Music Center. I joke about this, but it's really true. I made up how to do this. Like I made up how to do a job, right? Like I, I didn't know how to do anything. And honestly, some of the people around me didn't either. And so we were sorting out how to market this place. We brought in some really incredible people and we opened the venue in September 29th of 2012. From there, obviously, when you build a venue, we ended up building an advisory board. And so part of my role ended up being that I helped manage the advisory board. So I learned a lot. 
like a crazy amount from brilliant people in this industry from other corporate, you know, fields. And I was dealing with all the artists, right? Like, so, so I was doing contracts. And so then I was like dealing with the writers and helping mm-hmm. our tech, you know, our production team take care of the catering and the hotels and the transportation and all that fun stuff. So I ended up becoming the associate director of artistic administration and board relations. It was like the most complicated <laughs> title to ever put on like any business card. That but it was a very my long title. title. <laughs> and I was so proud of it, right? Like it was like really my first, it was my second, but my first big kid job. And I was like, I remember what I bought with my first paycheck. Like I was just so excited. Over time, I ended up becoming the director of artistic administration. So like we, you know, started putting on more shows. The board was becoming too much for me to do. At that time, Zarin Mehta, who ran the New York Philharmonic, for years came and consulted for us and was essentially a half ED for us. We had, he was more the artistic ED and then we had more of a business E who also ran administration and finance on campus. So it was really an amazing learning experience. Like, you know, I got to learn from Bob Cole. I got to learn from Zarin. They're legends in this industry. So Mm -hmm. that was really a unique experience for me and really special. Zarin brought on some folks who ended up taking on the board relations side, which was really helpful for me at the time. And I was still continuing to kind of make up what I was doing, right? Learning from people, learning how people did things other places, right? We continued to bring in people who had worked at other venues and would be like, oh, we did it this way at our venue. So I'd take Mm -hmm. bits and pieces of what people had done and continued on with what they were doing. You know, over time, (laughs) Zarin eventually retired, retired. Uh, Jibiro ended up um, joining our team as our executive director. That was like a very pivotal shift in a lot of our jobs here in like a really great way. He's the type of leader that comes in and like listens, listens and learns. What are things that are working here? What are things that aren't? And it became a very collaborative team. And I ended up becoming the director of operations because that's what I was doing, right? I was helping manage a bunch of different things for the venue, you know, from back of house to to front of house to helping make sure facilities knew what was happening on site so that they could be successful. And so I took on that role as the director of operations Within that six-year span of time, most recently, I became the senior director of operations when I ended up taking on front of house full-time post-pandemic, and they ended up reporting up to me. They're a great team. I'm very proud of them. That's kind of where we are now. So that's how I got here. It's funny. I say it's boring. It's really not. Like, it was a (laughs) wild roller coaster of a ride. It's interesting because, like, I've only ever worked one place, right? Which Right. I can look out my door and there's a ton of people who have worked in multiple venues across the country. Mm-hmm. I've only ever known this space, which has its like benefits. <laughs> it also has right. its downfalls. Right. Um, and so I have to be very aware of that as we as I operate and as I grow and as I maybe eventually one day I'm not here. Right. Like I'm very be here and I love being here, but it's definitely it's a sticky spot for me because I do feel a little bit of shame in that for some reason. Like, oh, I've only ever been here. When I should be proud, I should be like, yeah, I've been here and I've right. built this place. But it's interesting, the imposter, imposter syndrome that I struggle with constantly. Can I ask why, why do you feel like that? I think it is pretty common in our industry for people to be someplace five, six, seven years, move on to the next thing, maybe 10 years. But there are people that do have that same longevity. And so I was going to ask you about the power of that longevity and kind of seeing something from the very beginning, like you were there at the beginning, like before the place even opened, which is an amazing trajectory and quite special to like see something grow. Where do you think that imposter syndrome or that like unease with like, yeah, I've only ever been here. Where do you think that comes from? When we had a, a call recently about ELI alum and, and we that that came up for me a lot of um, having that imposter syndrome. 
people will be like, oh, well, you helped build this place. And I'd be like, nah, it was really a team. It's fine. Which it is. It is a team. It takes a whole team to make this place run. It makes, makes this place successful to make me look successful. I think I've had a lot of people in my career that did shove me down, that did tell me, like, mm. you're too young to be doing what you're doing. Um, you don't have enough experience. But sure, at year one makes sense. At year 10 doesn't make sense anymore, right? I may have been in the same place, but I have 10 years of experience in this field. I think 12 now. Right. In an institution that has grown and changed significantly, it's gone through many iterations. Right. And I'm, I'm good at my job, right? And I think that there is just this, I don't know if it's a generational thing. I know I know I have a lot of friends who also feel imposter syndrome in their own line of work. But I definitely feel for me, I was told I was too young to be doing what I was doing. I was too inexperienced. And despite people in the last six years telling me, you're great, <laughs> you know what you're doing, you could teach people this, right? I still right. sit in the past, the first few years of like, you don't know what you're doing. You're not good enough. You know, you... Mm are going to make that it very insecurity. far. So that's, I think, yeah. where my imposter syndrome comes from. But I'm really trying to work on, no, I do know what I'm doing. I'm really good at my job. You carry yourself in a certain way when you feel a certain way or you believe certain things. So I am trying to really work on that because I think it's important for, you know, we have a lot of students that work for us that like see me operate and see me work. And I want them to be like, oh, one day I could do what she's doing because they can, anybody can. That is something that I'm really trying to work on and work through because it just sits with me and has for so long. And I think it's starting to affect the way that I see myself or see where I could go and what I could do because I, I think I just feel like, oh, no, you can only do X or you are too young still. Yeah, I'm still young. I'm 35, but... I'm 35. I'm not 22 anymore. Right? So definitely like <laughs> you do have all of that experience. Right. It's true. I turned 22 the, the day before we opened this place. So you've been at it even longer than that. Yeah. So however long admin. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's an I, I stopped counting, I guess. That's incredible. And I feel so similarly. And so and I'm I'm 36. Our listeners won't believe it because they think I'm much younger than that. But you're wise um, beyond your years. <laughs> wise. Well, years. thank you. Um, but being 35, 36, being women that have come up, like basically like I started at 23 in the industry. So we are very similar. Like we were starting at the same time. Um, I started out at like the sole person at my institution. I had no support whatsoever. Right. Also like incredibly young, like having people who supported, but then also having people in my ear going like, you can't do this. You're not good. Enough. Like, I don't know that people recognize like the long-term impact. Yep that that has and how long it sits with you. I just wonder how much we take that on as young women mm -hmm. that have been socialized to like listen to those messages and take them much more seriously, perhaps than others. It's such an interesting thing. But this is not an uncommon thing that I hear from women our age in the field. No, I agree. And I remember sitting in our cohort in 2018 and that being a common thread for a lot of us in the room, specifically women in the room talking about that because we were all really around the same age or at least in the same steps in our career. So Caroline, thinking about that imposter syndrome and how that influences you and the way that you operate in your job, I know that yeah. you do some mentorship work through the California Presenters Network. Um, you're working with young staff, you're working with students at the university. So how does that impact how you interact with them and maybe the mentorship that you're providing to younger people in the industry? I think that's what started to bring it back up for me again. I got asked to 
be a mentor through Cal Presenters for a, an awesome human being who is my age, right? So I was like, what do I have to teach her? So that that has definitely brought some stuff up for me, but it's been a very rewarding experience because mentorship really is two ways. You learn equal amounts from what you give. I'm learning from Grace, the same amount that she may or may not be learning from me, <laughs> um, which I find to be really rewarding. I have a great team. Shout out to Andy and Jen. They're amazing and have really taken on front of house and just like made it something really great. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think they provide a fantastic guest service experience. We collaborate on everything. They're great. They, they're always telling me how supportive I am, right? And things like that, that just make me like feel like, okay, like we can do this. Like we're a great, we're a great little squad that gets to put all this stuff together. But I definitely think there's still that voice in my head that makes me really second guess stuff. But I do have it together. I do a great job. We all do. You do, right? Like we do great work. We earned what we got. We worked hard for it. We know we have lessons to learn and things to learn and I mess up, but I learn from those mistakes and I move on. And we have great student ushers that work for us. We have volunteers as well that work for us from our community and they're fantastic. Similarly, <laughs> have taught me as much as I think I've tried to help guide or teach them. And so that that's just been really special for me. It doesn't solve my imposter syndrome problem at all. I think it really does. Like I said earlier, it's kind of kickstarted it for me again. Interesting. I don't think it ever went away. I think it's just something I'm going to deal with for the rest of my life. You know, when you have any kind of person in your life tell you you aren't good enough or you um, are too young or not able to do something, it's going to stay with you. It's just about how you how do you manage that? How do you work through it? How do you prove them wrong and prove yourself wrong? Like we put on a 4th of July event every year. It's our biggest selling event. It has, you know, because we have fireworks that go off and people mm. love the fireworks. Oh, yeah. We have, you know, 42 to 4,500 people here. It's a lot wow. of people when That's explosives people. are 500 feet away. And I manage the fireworks portion of it as well as, you know, other operational things. And we were driving home after the show and the coworker and I used to call each other on our drive home to keep each other awake. She said, you know... It's so impressive to me that all those people left there with a great experience and you put that experience on for them. She's like, have you ever thought about that? And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't think about that. Mm -hmm. But that was words that she said. She said that she's actually said that to me repeatedly after the last few shows. That's something that I'm trying to then say to myself, like and say to our team, like we did this. Mm -hmm. 3000 people were here on Friday and had a great experience. We need to stop leaning into the we're not good enough. Like knowing that that's there and we got to work through that, but like leading into the, what are we able to do and look at what we have done and be proud of that and know yeah. that we're, we're, we're able to do this. I think it's having those people in your sphere, right? Whether they're personally or professionally who are recognizing that and saying that to you right. on a regular basis is so important. I certainly feel that way. And I certainly need that reminder and that encouragement too. I have come to recognize that I have people in my life that are that cheerleader for me. Mm -hmm. And so then turning that around and making sure that I am the same for other people other in people. my workplace. Well, thanks for being so honest about that because I think oh, imposter yeah. syndrome, like we all have it at least to some extent, but like, it's so hard to talk about. And we admit are our that own worst critics, right? Like I also think about that too. Yes. Sing it sister. I think it's so easy to be like, oh, well that person has it together. Right. Or they're a step ahead of me or they've accomplished so much more at 35, 36. Also you have accomplished a lot. 
you know, like you just have, because like you're talking about, you've seen this place grow from its infancy all the way through. You've risen through the ranks. You now run the functions that make the place go. Right. So without you and your team, there's no front of house. There's no, you know, emergency planning, uh, just the things that make the building function and make the events happen. Right. That's under your purview. And that is not anything to sniff at, you know, it's super important. I just listed some of the things that you do, but can you give us a quick Mm -hmm. overview of Green Music Center? Like what's the programming that you do? And then what is your actual job as senior operations manager? Because I know it's a laundry list of things that you're responsible for. We program a variety of different things. Our our hall was built for Western classical music, but we break out of that box real quick. We have a global music festival coming up in a couple months. We program things, big shows like Buddy Guy that have 3,000 people here. Things like, you know, Jazz Lincoln Center with Wynton Marsalis to the incredible choreographer Liz Lerman premiered her newest and last work, um, Wicked Bodies, here. So we we do some That's pretty cool. incredible things that break a lot of boundaries for what arts organizations are doing, right? We love to put in money into commissioning work and creating space for artists to be, you know, putting together work here, rehearsing work here. We have the great Martha Redbone. Oh, I love Martha Redbone. Um, She'll be here this year. We do some some smaller um, shows in our smaller concert halls. We have two concert halls. We have Wild Hall and Lawn. So Wild Hall, Wild Hall and Lawn is our summer Wild Hall indoor for the normal season. And Schroeder Hall, which is a smaller 250-seat recital hall, and we're partnering with our music department. We have um, Silk Road Ensemble with the great Rian and Giddens, which is going to be so exciting. We've had Silk Road here with Yo-Yo. We've had Silk Road without Yo-Yo. And now we have Silk Road with Rian and Giddens, which I'm just like beyond thrilled about. Love that. We do a wide range of programming. Um, We try not to limit ourselves to what we can and can't do and try and explore new things all the time. We have the group Bandaloop. Have you heard about Bandaloop? Mm -hmm. They're the group that like jumps off of buildings and dances down the side of them. We've had them here and we're doing a huge project with them this year. Love that. They're our artistic directors from Roner Park, which is where Sonoma State is. And so is doing as creating a work around that here, which is really special. We love to to break those (laughs) those different ideas of what this hall was built for. And yeah, we present Western classical music and provide space for artists who need to create work and want to create work. And, you know, we give them the space to do that. So that's really important to us for sure. That is amazing. You asked what I did, right? Yes. The big, the the big big laundry list, the big question. What is it that, what does senior operations manager mean? What do you do on a day-to-day basis? I, as a senior director of operations, this is what I do. I do anything from contracts. So I do all of our artist contracts. I process them, read through the writers with our tech director, get them processed through our university contracts office, which is, you know, being part of a university and a state organization, like contracts are a thing, right? And so working to be equitable and making sure the artists are getting what they need and we have to do our like, you know, typical legal stuff. So I do that. I advance the logistical part of an advance. So anything from hospitality to dressing rooms, to comp tickets, to settlement, to merch, to ground and hotel. That's my portion of the advance. Anything tech or on stage is managed by our tech director. I oversee our front of house team. So meet with them, make sure that they're all set and that they have what they need, answer any questions for them and support them, right? Like I'm the backup to the backup. So (laughs) making sure that I'm in tune with what's going on there. I oversee our university commencement and a couple of other large scale university events that take place here at the Great Music Center. I'm here for almost every show that we present. I'm not here for the Santa Rosa Symphony or other events. 
like that, but I am here for almost every event we present. I handle facilities aspects of of the venue. So just making sure that our facilities team, which is managed through the campus, is aware of what we need when we need it and work really closely with them to make that happen. I do all the setup. So I go artist shopping. I go to the grocery store and pick up what they need, order what they need, set out what they need, stock the fridge. Oh, wait, that sounds like artist relations management, Caroline. Mm, Yes, I do that too. That's all encompassed in in the job. I organize and work with our security company that we we hire out for for all of our summer shows. That's really when we have security because of the large crowd sizes and what people can and can't bring in. Mm-hmm. I also help manage the emergency plan, which you referenced earlier. So I keep it up to date annually and make sure that we're in compliance and that we have our ducks in a row in the event of an emergency were to occur. So. Yeah. Oh, and I'm part of our programming team. Yes. When Jacob started six years ago, he, one of the things he did was really create like a very collaborative process, um, really trying to help us learn and understand things from him, but also from each other, which I think is so important. So we have a programming team where we all bring ideas to the table to create our fun season each year. So I love that. That's been a really amazing experience for me. It's helped me just like learn and grow. And I love when I've booked a show because then I can be very like, be very proud of that, right? Like every time that show's come and gone, you're like, I did that. Yeah. And the audience like responds well to it. It's always like, like, oh no, I really hope they like it. That's, I think, kind of an idea of what I do. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot of things. So you're talking facilities, you're talking operations, setups, artist relations management, Mm -hmm. you're managing staff. What are some of those, especially, and this is kind of for those young folks out there that are coming in, like, how do you prioritize and how do you manage kind of those day to day? Because depending on whether you're doing commencement or you're doing something in that 250 seat hall, like those are very different scales and very different sets of responsibilities and duties and things that need to happen. How do you kind of manage the breadth of the things that you're responsible for? I definitely think that planning and I've always been a planner sometimes a little too much. I love to plan out things. And sometimes I say too much in my life because you can't plan out your life because you never know what's going to (laughs) happen. I try and plan ahead. I try and really look at the next two weeks. I don't take it farther than two weeks because sometimes you can't, right? With the amount of stuff you have going on, you just can focus on maybe the next day. That's why I joke about like, I don't know who's coming next week because I know who's coming Thursday, Los Lonely Boys, right? Like I'm really, I try and plan out no further than two weeks. Sometimes you have to plan out a little further for some stuff or you start a planning process months in advance, like commencement is an example of that or our big festival we have coming up. For the most part, the day-to-day stuff or the, the shows, right? Taking it two weeks at a time, really trying to plan out what do you have to do? I'm a list person. I like to make lists for what I have upcoming to do. I categorize it. I'm really nerdy like this. But then I also make like a general to-do list for my day. What am I going to accomplish today? And sometimes I don't accomplish everything. Like I have three things I did not accomplish on my four thing to-do list today. (laughs) Mostly because I was thinking about talking to you and that was more exciting (laughs) than that. But I will focus on that tomorrow. Right? Right. And I try and really map out my day in that way. Having a good team around me has really been such a great part of my success. So I definitely think planning is an important part of that. Knowing what you can and can't do and delegating. I didn't learn that till I'm not, I was never a good delegator. Arguably, 
ask people I work with, I'm still not a good delegator, right? (laughs) I'm just not. I like to make sure things are done right. And the only way I can know that that happens is if I do it myself. That is not a helpful way to move through life. So I have learned over the years that like delegating to folks that are offering their help or choosing folks to delegate things to helps in getting things done and making things successful. Something we haven't really talked about on the pod that you do is emergency preparedness. So you said that you update that plan, you're responsible for those processes and procedures. What is that like? And how has that changed over the course of your career? Like how much detail are you putting into it now? Who are you collaborating with? How stressful is that? No, I didn't really touch the emergency plan for the first, let's say half of my time here. It was under the responsibility of other people. I think when I got to be the operations director, I took on that plan. It needed some updating. We had a meeting about it and updated it. So we have, since we're part of the university, you know, there's a general university plan. The emergency team on the university side helped create the original plan. So it really was just updating it and making it better. And as things happen in our world, we have to adjust it. We have to add stuff. We have to change language. As departments diminish in our division or things like that, we have to make sure it's all still together and organized. We're in the process of updating it currently. And it's sitting with our university um, police chief to kind of have a a good um, oversight of or an overview of it right now. A shout out to our front of house team for they're the ones that really have to implement it in an emergency. We're all crowd manager certified, which is important. I don't know, like some venues do it differently. You know, we are all crowd manager certified. We take that very seriously. It's a responsibility we hold as folks leading events here to make sure that it is a safe environment for people to be in, both physically and emotionally. But definitely we do our best, right? We're all humans and we we fall short. We have to make sure that we're just in compliance and doing things in a safe and ineffective way. One of the harder things that's started to be a th- more so a thing is, you know, active shooter training. And when artists, I've had artists come on site in the last two years specifically, who before a show will be like, what what happens if there's an active shooter? Having to to respond to that is is hard, right? Like, you know, every time my kid comes here, that's all I'm thinking about. Because mm-hmm. it's 2023. And that's the sucky world we live in. Yeah. Um, but things like that, we have wildfires here. We had really awful wildfires up in Northern California in 2017, and 2018 which affected a lot of things. We had COVID, right? There's so many different things that have happened that have affected how our emergency response plan has been written. We've shifted it. We've altered ways that we do things, but we've also, some of the things just still remain the same and we thankfully haven't experienced them yet. And the venue wasn't built the way we use it, which is such a challenge when you're trying to like do what the artist wants and like figure out how to make the work work while still staying within the confines of what the fire marshal has said you can do. That's it's definitely so fascinating. Been a challenging part of this job while I help implement it and manage who's crowd manager trained and certified and keep the binder updated. You know, our team does a really great job of implementing things in emergencies and getting people out to where they need to go. And those are all great things to think about. And I don't mm-hmm. know that venues, especially of a certain size with limited staff, like have the time capacity to think about. So that's a, a great list of and great starting place for venues that like maybe haven't put in that time yeah. and effort and work. And an IVM does a lot of work on this. They have committees and things that work specifically on this and can speak to it way more eloquently than I can. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of venues across this country that are doing incredible work and have dedicated staff towards this or have folks that really do dedicate more of their time to it than other things. But I definitely think, you know, venues with smaller staff teams, th- this is hard. 
I don't do a great job of keeping it up to date all the time. I have to set calendar reminders and plan things out so I can make sure that we're in compliance, make sure that the fire marshal's happy and we've put in our permits on time yeah. and yeah. things like that. But it's hard. It's very, very hard when you're in the nitty gritty of the day to day and you're just trying to get things done. It's not naturally the first thing we're going to think about until something bad happens. And so it's trying to be prepared for when the bad things could happen because we all know they will happen. Yeah. I think that's what our world has proven. Bad things will happen. So being prepared or as prepared as you can be. There's some things you can't be prepared for and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Be as prepared as you can be for the things you know you can prevent or help stop in an emergency or help get people to safety. That's the important thing. I'm really not great at like <laughs> staying on top of it because we are a small team and we're trying to sort it all out. Split it up amongst your team. Get folks to do different research. Get emergency plans from venues that really do have it together and pare it down to fit your venue. Um, and practice. Practicing it um, annually um, yes. is super helpful if you can. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, switching gears in our, yes. limited, in our limited time. Yes. Uh, so you mentioned in your intro, you're a working mom. And yes, you are too. <laughs> <laughs> something we have in common. Yes. So now we're both working moms. We're doing these like really intensive jobs. You mentioned you're at your venue for almost every single show. So what what is that like? And what is your hope for the future of our industry when it comes to working parents? It's the hardest part of my job is being a working mom. That's the hardest part. <laughs> my husband's the best. Like he really, he really is the, he's so supportive and he did ask for the shout out. So I'm going to give it to him. He is really supportive and has, you know, he takes on everything Aiden and our dog Whiskey, because um, Whiskey is a toddler basically too, for every single show that I have going on. I would be remiss to not shout out the people who work here because <laughs> that kid is being raised by people here too. Some people here are on the emergency pickup list for Aiden at his daycare. So an example is this Thursday. We have a show. I have to put out catering at a certain time. And likely not me is going to go pick up Aiden from daycare down the street and bring him here. And he's going to hang out and run around outside until dad can come pick him up. It breaks my heart that Aiden's his new thing is like, mommy at work. I was like, yep, mommy's at work. Yeah, I feel Which is, that. it's hard to hear that, right? It's hard to know that he associates me with being at work. On the flip side, he sees somebody who's like super strong and a badass and is putting in her time to do great work in this world. And that's okay too. But I do think that the split of it is so hard. It's hard to be at home and feel like you have so much to do at work. And it's hard to be at work and feel like you're missing out at so much at home. I'm sure you feel very similarly. Yeah, I do. This. I absolutely do. I'm very privileged in the fact that I get to have folks around me and a great team of friends and a great team of colleagues who have embraced my kid and embraced my family and have let Aiden run on the stage during setup while I'm setting out catering or it's a Sunday and that's like our one day off fully as a family together because my husband works on Saturdays too. We have a show that afternoon and so we'll all go as a family to go set up catering and the dressing rooms and whatever else needs to get set up because, you know, we've made it a thing that it's important for Aiden to see that it's okay to be a working mom. It's okay to be a working parent. It's also okay to, to, to you know, not, right? It's okay to whatever you choose in life is okay. The world doesn't make it easy for working parents. 
right? No. The school no. system isn't set up for working no. parents in this country. It's oh just God, not. No. School ends at what? I don't even know yet. You're about to experience this. School ends at like <laughs> four, two? Four o'clock. For, four well, o'clock. For kindergarten, it's nine to four. What? Nine to four? Like I work eight to 530. That's business hours. And then we work later, right? Like it's like, that's not real. That's mm-hmm. not real. I heard here in Sonoma County, it like ends at like two. Then you have to send them to like, you know, yeah, after school care or whatever, which I did as a child. I just don't remember it was so long ago. It's not set up to make working parents successful. I mean, I could go on and on. I think the paternity maternity system in this country is crap. Like, it's ridiculous. You have six weeks and you have to go back to work. Thankfully, at my job, that is not the case. We have fantastic benefits and fantastic maternity leave. But that is not the case everywhere for people. I just hope that our industry starts to embrace and they in a lot of places do I, I mean we've heard from so many people especially through APAP that like their kids grew up like on you know backstage my kid's gonna grow up backstage and he's gonna like t- get to meet so many people and talk so highly about it right and that's it's great. gonna be amazing it's gonna be amazing for him but there are a lot of organizations that don't support that and don't want the kids backstage and and like sure you're you're a professional environment like you're trying to create a a good space for the artist to come into and they might not want a two-year-old running around that's fair i'm very grateful for the people that are helping us raise our son while we both work full-time i'm grateful to daycare i'm grateful for I'm not grateful for how much daycare costs, but I'm grateful for daycare. Um, I'm grateful for my colleagues and I'm grateful for our friends and I'm grateful for our family. Our, our parents don't live here. They live in Southern California and Central California and they fly or drive here to help cover us when we are working wow. on the weekend. So shout out to them. I think it's just important to find your people who will support you. Don't think it ever gets easier. My kids too. So it's he's in the like learning phase. So you just I feel more guilt. I guess I just feel guilty. But you know, I'm trying to work past that guilt too. Guilt and imposter syndrome, the two things I'm working oh. through. I, I do think that our industry and every industry in this country can do better and needs to do better. I also think that like as a working mom, it's so hard. Like you're just constantly feeling the guilt of where you aren't. Yeah. When I'm trying to really embrace the where am I at that moment? And that's where I'm supposed to be at that moment. If I really feel strongly that's not where I'm supposed to be, then I need to do something about it. And I need to make that shift or find someone to to cover the show so I can go be with my kid or, you know, vice versa. Well, thank you for sharing. And I yeah. feel that wholeheartedly. And um, it's supportive women like us, you know, even cheering each other on from like, you're 2000 miles away from me. Um, but just know that like, I'm always in your corner and I feel that too. And like, ditto. I mean, I watched you do this before I watched you run before I could walk. Is that the phrase? I like, thank God for Facebook. I like, it's been (laughs) such a gift to get to witness you be a mom in this industry and to then come in after you. And I knew you before you were a mom too. So it's such a gift to get to watch the people that I know in this industry, like thrive and thrive as a parent. So Kudos to you because you've been doing a killer job. Well, thank you. Caroline, I know that you are a regular listener to the podcast. So this question might not surprise you, but uh, I have a time machine. Uh, Brian Zelmer somehow got a time machine and we found we found it. It was lost for a while, but (laughs) it's come back to us. So I want to take you back in time 
to actually two points in your career. So I'm going to mm-hmm. ask you about two different points. So I want to take you back first to when the Green Music Center was first being built and you were still, you were like just going down this path of arts administration. What advice would you give to baby Caroline back in the day? See, I know what I want to say, but I'm wondering what the other point in my <laughs> life is. Um, I would say that change is inevitable. Don't be afraid of it because every point of change in your career is going to lead to something better. Mm. It will be terrifying. It will not be comfortable, but it will lead to something great. So don't be afraid of it. I love that. All right. So then maybe you're, we're going to skip ahead a few years. Okay. It might be the same advice. I don't know. Let's skip forward to the moment where you knew that you were going to have a baby and that mm. was going to change your relationship <laughs> to your work. What yeah. sort of advice would you give yourself looking back, you know, about what, almost three years now um, before Aiden was born. Be patient with yourself. Lean on the people around you who are wanting to help you. I'm not one to ask for help. I am Mm -hmm. one to like try and look like a superhuman all the time, which like, sure, I think we all are superhumans at some level. I have such a core group of people around me that are always wanting and willing to help both at home, friends around us, and then obviously here in the workplace that have really rallied around me. And I think when the change started, I was so freaked out by it all that I didn't give myself patience and I didn't allow other people to help me. So I would just say to, you know, past Caroline, like be patient with yourself, give yourself grace and like allow yourself to stumble because it's okay. Allow everyone around you that's wanting to rally around you and wanting to help you, let them help you. It's only going to make you a better person, you a stronger person and your family stronger. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that's incredibly valuable advice. Baby Caroline, listen to yourself. Man, I really <laughs> should go back and listen to her. <laughs> okay. So it's been a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad we got to spend this time together. It's time for our final question that we ask all of our guests. And mm-hmm. that is, what do you love most about working in the industry today? I love the work that we do. I love being able to create a safe space for people to come and experience art, experience music, experience something transformational. I love creating space for artists to create that transformational work. I love the work. Like, I just think it's so important and holds so much value in our world right now. We need to be shedding a bigger light on it. And I am just so grateful to be able to be a part of this greater community that gets to be doing this. I love it. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today on There's No Business Like. It was such a pleasure to have this time with you and have you as a guest on the show. And Likewise. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. Our pleasure. We'll see you soon. Bye. Um, So Katie, you and Carolyn came in hot on this one. Um, I wasn't expecting the imposter syndrome conversation so soon. Um, And... I can't say it didn't give me all the feeling. <laughs> so much of what she talked about in that in that first part about feeling like you're too young um, in a place or having people actually tell you that are things that um, I've experienced and, you know, is one of those things that I think you do carry at least for a while. And it does affect how you see yourself and like if you belong in certain spaces and 
it was hard to listen to. Um, but you know, I was really grateful that you guys had that conversation. Thanks, Danielle. I didn't know that that's where we were going to go at the top either, but I'm really grateful that we did. Um, and I really hope that other people appreciate that part of the conversation as much as, as I did and as much as you did. Uh, yeah, I just want to jump in and sort of, uh, point out that I don't think anybody is is really ever too young um, to be in the, the positions they are in and the roles they're in, because I mean, I've met some really incredible people who are young and old and, you know, are in, you know, leading organizations who are doing really great things. And I still continue to learn from people who are younger than me uh, as well. So the one thing I really appreciate about that portion of that conversation was sort of Caroline talking about like, why it's sort of crazy that she has imposter syndrome about like all the things that she has accomplished, the time she spent in the field. And it's sort of, it was nice for me because it gave me a moment to go. Yeah, that's a great point because I have those same feelings and to hear somebody else sort of rationalize, like, you know, uh, why they shouldn't have it gave me an opportunity to go. Yeah, no, I'm in the same boat. Like I also should not um, be feeling that same way. So I, I think that there's, you know, whether she intended it that way or not, there are some good tools to maybe, talk yourself out of your imposter syndrome. I, I love all the conversation around imposter syndrome and on the level of starting in a position young. And so many of us starting in any position don't actually know what we're doing and just kind of work our way through it and, and teach ourselves as we go. Even if, even if we're taking on a position that somebody has been in before and there's something laid out in front of it, we don't know how we're going to approach that position and how it's going to work for us. Even though she was already in the position, she has proven herself to be the right person for that position. And that's something that she's had to struggle through with imposter syndrome. And I think all of us can uh, associate with that. Um, and I know, Katie, Kevin, both of you were at the heads of venues at a young age, as was I. I. I wasn't too young to be in the position, but I was too inexperienced to be in the position. And I made a lot of mistakes and I learned the hard way. But that's the beauty to it is that there is a grace and there is that process. And I've been here 16 years now, and I I want to say it's 12 or 13 years before the imposter syndrome for my position started to go away. Hey, y'all, I'm the old man in the room, and I still fight that from time to time. Um, you know, I've, I think I've gotten a lot better, and what's helped me is you guys, which I've talked about and how you've helped guide me to be more comfortable in my own skin and, and have my own voice. But I still get that. And I think part of that is because as art workers, we tend to be more empathetic. We tend to have more of our emotions are closer to the surface. And, and you know, the old adage of you're only as good as your last show and we're constantly changing things over. And I think that kind of seeps its way in to some, some extent. You know, I listen to uh, Conan O'Brien's podcast. And he talks about how it even hits him. He could have millions of people, you know, tuning into his episode and one person makes a comment or just someone in the audience, if he's in a live show, he sees one person that just doesn't even, they might be enjoying themselves, but they may not be looking like they're as engaged. And he gets in his own head like, oh, what did I do wrong? What am, you know, and he starts getting imposter syndrome and he's, you know, a huge figure in the entertainment world. So, it happens to all of us. But Caroline uh, did say a lot of things, I, as we all just mentioned, we related to. And part of that was that we're our own worst enemy. Most of the time, the greatest critiques, the greatest, you know, negative thoughts and things come from within ourselves. And getting over that or trying to silence that or tell that voice, no, that's not right. You know, go sit down in the corner that, you know, I'm doing a great job. 
I asked our starting question today as I did, because I, I want us to all take a moment and reflect on like how other people show up for us and how we're showing up for others. Because as you said before, Brian, like it, we are just running a hundred miles an hour in our line of work and taking that moment to tell somebody they did a good job to lift up a good idea, to make space for other voices at the table. Those are ways that we can help ourselves combat this imposter syndrome and give us more confidence in ourselves and help our teams in that way too. Um, we've talked a lot about like mental health and well-being and employee morale and how we're re- rebuilding organizational culture. And those small things can make a huge difference. Um, one of the things she said was that she's not good at delegating because, you know, it's like she wants it done the right way. You know, the way she would do it is the right way. And I have felt like that numerous times. Um, and not that I don't trust people around me, but sometimes I feel like there's just, just, just a specific way that I want something done and other ways are fine, but I want it my way. And I think that that's kind of a side effect of the imposter syndrome because like whenever you're experiencing that, you always feel like there's somebody like in the back of your head that's just like waiting like waiting for something to happen so we can be like, see, I told you, see, I've started trying to like be thinking about when I'm delegating something that I'm delegating a task and I'm not necessarily delegating how to do it whenever the way that I would do it isn't actually a hundred percent necessary. Like I could not start our field trip program at Wolf Trap unless the blinds were all like at the same level. It didn't matter where they were, but there were just a lot of windows in a row. And I could not deal, like, I could not let people in the space if the blinds were at all different crazy levels. And like, it didn't need to be that way, but like, I had to make sure it was that way. And, you know, trying to like, not put that on other people as well. I also appreciated Caroline's talk about working parents. And I, I related to that being the father of four children. And I've talked about how there was a period in my life where I was almost like a single parent because of things that my wife was going through at the time. And it is hard. And it, it reminded me that whole conversation that you had with her, Katie, uh, made me think of previous episodes that we talked about, uh, in particular, the Sarah McCarthy episode and, you know, the analogy she used about too many pots on the stove and so forth. And, and there's times where we need to do the work and, and there's, the show is there and we have to show up for it at crazy hours and, and that takes us away from our family. But then the thing that I've had to learn is, okay, it's time to go home on, an, on a re- quote unquote regular day. And I, I'm like, oh, I've got just this one more thing on my checklist that I wanted to get done today. And honestly, I don't need to do that. But I start, I'm like, it'll just take me a few minutes. Next thing I know, I'm an hour later. And that's an hour I took away from my family. I didn't have to. Or it's two hours or three hours. You know, sometimes I get on a roll. I'm like, oh, just, and then an email pops in. And I've learned to also shut off the email. And I think I've talked about this before, but I'm like, if if it's an emergency, it's not coming in through email. So after quote unquote hours, I, I purposely will not even look at my email notifications because I'll get sucked into it. If it's an emergency, the people that are around to get a hold of me, they have my cell phone and know that it's okay to call me or text me on an emergency case. That's how I, I've gotten to kind of adjust with that. And, and that's important because, you know, your family, your kids are only young once and you have to work. So balancing that is, is very difficult, but you, you kind of have to make that choice sometimes to turn work off. And that's the hard thing to do. And that ne- next task will be there the next morning. It sure will. Mm-hmm. Exactly. One thing that I associated with is Mary Claire is often at the theater with me. And I think that my approach to it sets the tone for whenever other people come into the house. And there are times when, you know, we're in the middle of a, a big load in for a big commercial show. No, she doesn't need to be on the stage at that point. 
we've had magicians who me and Mary Claire have been walking through in the middle of the in the middle of their rehearsal, and they'll stop in the middle of the rehearsal and have an assistant go and get a stuffed a little stuffed animal tiger for her, and stop and just talk to her in the middle of the rehearsal. And she's she has so many incredible experiences like that. But I think it's it's very important as the leader in the venue to kind of set that tone that this is the way we do things here. Yeah. And as a non-parent in a working environment, I actually enjoy when my my colleagues like bring their kids to stuff, um, mostly because I think kids should be introduced to the arts from a young age. Um, and so, you know, where I'm at, we have, you know, gallery openings, but we also, you know, we do performances as, as well. So bringing your, your kids to those things or just those times when they need to be here at the office when you're doing some work, I think is perfectly acceptable. And honestly, I would encourage it because it gives them an opportunity to see their parents in their working environment um, outside of the home, but also gives them an opportunity to interact with the arts in a very unique way. I mean, one of the coolest things about what we get to do on a daily basis is the interaction and the the closeness that we have with our artists and the, the art that we get to partake in. Love that. Yeah. I spent a lot of time um, in my mom's workplace. My mom was a florist for a long time. And so I, I would go and I had my own little area back like where they kept like the silks and I would like sit back there for hours, like just copying what they were doing and getting like the vase out and getting the little foam and like doing my flower arrangements and then like having everybody come and like, ooh and ah at them. And, you know, then like I'd put them all back for like another day, but I would spend hours there and I loved like being just in a workplace. It was awesome. I think one of the things that's really interesting about Caroline's trajectory is that she has been at the same venue and has literally seen this venue grow from the ground up. I mean, has been in different positions at her venue, but has seen it from its opening and to doing some really impressive programming and not something that is, you know, super common with, you know, our generation or in our industry to be at a place that long, but also what a, what a cool story for her to be able to tell as well. Yeah. And she did allude that there's benefits and minuses to that. And, and there is to everything in life. And, you know, one of the things that she has that, that many organizations don't is she has the institutional memory from being there for so long that, you know, most places don't. I, I benefit from that too. One of my coworkers has been here over 20 years at this program. And there's been times in meetings where I'll like, oh, I think I have a new idea and I'll talk about it. And we're like, oh, and she'll mention, oh, we did that. And this is what happened. And this is why it didn't work here, which if she wasn't around to share that, there's no, nothing in paperwork or anything I could look up to know that information. And that's valuable. So, you know, there, again, are there, are there benefits of moving every seven to 10 years? Yes. But is there also benefit of staying and, and being with an institution and knowing it as well as she does? Yes. And I think that we didn't get into this, but I do think that there is something valuable about that institutional memory. And as we are having conversations about intergenerational leadership, folks that have been around and can lend that perspective, I think are should be recognized and thanked for, you know, being there and, and bringing that to the table. But then also we need to have open dialogue about like when new people are coming in, there are fresh ideas, like not getting stuck in the past and doing it the same way because that's the way we've always done it but you know having that really positive meshing of new and old and things we've done and where we want to go in the future and just bringing that respect we've talked a little bit about like making sure those relationships are always grounded in respect for each other um and i know caroline 
is she loves her team that she's with now. Like we had some technical difficulties when we recorded and her boss actually came in and helped like restart the computer and get it all set up. And he loved the fact that she was being featured on our, on the show, on the pod and was a hundred percent in support of, of her telling her story. Right. And I thought that was really, really cool that she had the support of her supervisor like that. Um, so I think, you know, I, I love her whole journey. I was so glad that she agreed to come on and share and she's a big fan of the podcast. So it's nice to have this time with Caroline. I just want to thank her for all of her time and energy. Thank you all for being here with us again today on there's no business like, and we'll see you next time. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to there's no business like our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ines every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. I don't know that I could give you an, uh, a very specific example like Josh has, but I know that there are moments that I've been very appreciative of colleagues who have... Damn it. <laughs> what happened? Do you look at Danielle... I just... I looked at Josh and Danielle and I uh, both were laughing about something and I have no idea what. <laughs> then it just it's mostly invaded just, my brain. It throws you. I know. I know. Just um, your presence. You're welcome. So uh, let's see. Try this again. Did Kevin freeze for anyone else? Yes. yes. It's a very <laughs> awkward so laughing face. <laughs> take a picture of that. It's like the perfect spot to freeze. Oh, he moved. Did you catch it? Oh, I did. Oh, awesome. Sending it out. <laughs> Fuck all y'all. <laughs> it's not your fault. It just happened to freeze in the perfect spot. I love that there was a very sweet moment happening there. And both Josh and Daniel were like, not on my wa- our watch. <laughs> not on our watch. <laughs> All right, that was your chance. Sorry. Oh, okay. Perfect. Sorry. Just go ahead and end it. No, Kevin uh, needs us to make space for him. Go, Kevin. <laughs> oh. Wow, it's weird. That was very condescending. Thanks, Danielle.